So please, without further ado, put your hands together for the wonderful Rachel Joyce. Are you turned on, as it were? Um, <laughs> Speak, say something. Yes, we can hear you. Always turned on. Oh, there we go. Always turned on. Rachel, it's such a treat to have you here. And um, I know everyone here is probably dying for us to talk about the novels, but I'm not going to let you talk about the novels yet because I want to talk about A Snow Garden, your new collection of stories. These are, they're seasonal, aren't they? They are. They are, they are um, all set around Christmas. So they're, they're perfect stocking fillers. Just like to make that in a... Uh, I didn't intend to... I just wrote one Christmas short story once. And then my editor said, oh, could you make, write another one and we could maybe do a pamphlet? And then, um, in the end, I did seven. And I set them all on kind of key days over Christmas. So one is, one is set on the last day of the school term. Um, when I don't, there must be people like me, you, you realise Christmas is about to happen and you've not done anything. And then you feel quite resentful because mm. you haven't done anything. And also your children are in a school play, you know, about to be, and they're playing lizards. <laughs> where, did that, where does that happen? In the, so that, there's, there's that story. And then there's another one on Christmas Eve, um, which again came from something real, but got a tiny bit, a tiny bit exaggerated. But it's that night, you know, Christmas Eve, when you realise you've finally got to make the bike that you're going to give your son tomorrow morning, you know, on Christmas Day, from Kit. And it's about a couple who set off to do that, and in the course of making the bike, the kind of entire marriage falls apart, and indeed half of the house, because mm. that's kind of how my head works. And then another on Christmas Day, which is a kind of retelling of the Christmas nativity story now, and so on and so forth. So you've, picked all, the stress, you've picked all the stress I've points of, course of the I festive have. season, haven't you? <laughs> Why would I not? And there are so many good ones. Oh, this is true. This is true. And you do, because your subject has always been relationships and families and yeah, all that yeah. stuff. And yeah. in a way, Christmas is the perfect, perfect magnifying glass for that. It is. And I have to say, I, 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 I read these and I listened to them. I listened to the audio book of them ah, in yeah. high summer, in hot weather. Mm. And it, it didn't actually matter that they were set at Christmas because I think most of us worry in yes. some way about I Christmas know. all year round. I, well, I know. And, and then a part of me also thought, oh, it's a silly thing to write because there are so many Christmas books. I was thinking, this is stupid writing. But I don't know. I, the stories, for me, Christmas is such an interesting time because I am, I am so interested in what happens to kind of us. We're, we're all ordinary, and yet we kind of create this extraordinary thing. And so how everything must fall apart in the face yes. of it. Uh, you know, never ceases to amuse me but the and delight other, me. The other thing your collection does, which your publishers must be thrilled about, is it, it links through at key moments oh, to your does. longer works. And I love I love writers who do this. So there is kind of Rachel Joyceland. It's a slightly <laughs> heightened version of Gloucestershire yeah. with a kind of dark underbelly yeah. and with little bits of the coast thrown in. And yeah. what you've done in here, I think, is to... Am I right to think you've recycled slightly, where you've created have. characters for books which were too big you, for the book? I did. I, I wrote a little forward, which might seem a bit presumptuous, but I just wanted to explain kind of why, you know, why I decided to write these little <laughs> book of short stories. And... Um, uh, one, one of the reasons was that whenever I write something, I, you must be the same for you, you know, you have characters you have to cut. 
you know, they maybe just they get in the way of the story, or they're a bit too big, for the, whatever yeah. it is. You design them as supporting characters. You do, and, and then they, they and, they, and then they think, oh my god, this yeah. is you know, this has mm. got to go. But so I work in a caravan, which I really love. But I, I I began to have this notion that all these cut characters were in there with me, and it was getting a bit noisy and a bit claustrophobic. And really, the only way to get rid of them was to give them all a short story and show them <laughs> the door. Send them out into the world. <laughs> and I do say, and in fact, I do, because I, I also adapt for radio. So I, I, when I wrote the short stories, I just adapted Shirley, Charlotte Bronte's novel. Oh, you have a thing about the Brontes, don't you? I, yes, I've adapted yes. all of them now. I've, my, I did Jane Eyre earlier this year. I've just done Agnes Grey, and I'm about to do Wuthering Heights. But um, anyway, Shirley, the, I don't know if anyone knows Shirley, but there are about 100 pages of curates mm. before <laughs> Shirley comes in. <laughs> and the curates are lovely, but they don't do anything in this story. They really do just sit there and drink tea yeah. in If You're Charlotte Bronte. Yes. Just saying, not in my world, <laughs> just saying what Charlotte Bronte does with curates. So I have them all. I've still got them in my, in caravan, my caravan. I've got a caravan. And <laughs> if anybody would point. like any, if you've got any short stories coming up, <laughs> do come to me and you can have I them. think we can absolve you of guilt for, for Bronte's characters. I, mean, not <laughs> <laughs> I felt a bit responsible for cutting them, I must say. But I mean, I'm sorry, I couldn't. I had little time. So are you going to, could you read... A, a bit from yes, here. I will. I will read a bit. Um, I never know. I never quite know what's funny and what isn't. And you know, sometimes you read things out and you think oh, this is a really funny bit, and then well, Stony once silence. I realised that woman was asleep, um, <laughs> and then another time nobody laughed. So if you just smile, I'm more than happy. Okay. So this is this is the one that is set on Christmas Day. And it is a kind of, it's called Christmas Day at the airport. And it's a sort of retelling. Of, it was me and my, my husband and I were stuck at an airport around Christmas. And I don't know why we began discussing how the nativity would work out if it happened now. And we thought the airport would be quite a good place for it because it's such a kind of no man's land and everybody's traveling. That's how this began. So, so the, in this short story, there are lots of different versions of it. I mean, the big challenge was to get a donkey in. And I'm not going to read you that bit, but I did it. Um, but this is... Um, it's quite ingenious, the donkey bit, I think. I was quite pleased with the donkey, I have to say. But I'm not going to read it, you see. OK, so this is a little bit. Johanna asks everyone. The answer is always the same. No, they will not give up their seat. But my wife, she says in her broken English, she's pregnant. Well, that only makes it worse. People won't even catch her eye when they hear that. You should go home, someone tells her, and she doesn't know whether he means back to the flat or Eastern Europe. The baby is due in six weeks. Magda is not supposed to fly, not at this stage, but the tickets were cheap last-minute ones, so they kept quiet about her pregnancy. There are legal documents that Johanna needs to sign relating to the sale of her mother's house in Bucharest. She is walking fast past the rows of shops, it's hard to keep her mind focused when there are so many people and so many things to buy. She wants to know what is happening to Magda and whether it's normal, but she has no idea who to ask. She doesn't even, isn't even sure she has the right words. Watch where you're going, someone shouts. She looks to her left and realises it's Father Christmas. Six of them, actually. They are drinking cans of Coke outside duty-free. Have you seen any kids, asks another of the Father Christmases. 
<laughs> kids, repeats Johanna. We're looking for kids. We're the entertainment. We've been laid on by the airport, airport authority until things get sorted out in this place. One of the Father Christmases has lost his white beard, or maybe he's chosen not to wear it. His skin is dark and soft, and he looks all of 18. Johanna points in the direction of the seats. Lots of children there, she says. The Father Christmases give her a thumbs up and swagger away, ringing sleigh bells and shouting, ho, ho, ho. They sound more like a bunch of hungry football fans than bringers of gifts and good tidings. Briefly, she wonders about the father of Magda's baby. It's a painful question, and it still hurts like a spike every time it sneaks up on her. And so on and so forth. I could go on, but I'm not going to. I'm no, going to pause very there. Good. <laughs> Rachel, that, the extract you read is quite a... Um, among the stories, quite a funny one, but well, a very funny one. But it is a dark collection overall, I would yeah. say. And and I I think of you actually as quite a dark novelist. And it's there's an interesting tension here between the way your publishers package you. I know, which is on the sweeter side of mm. dark, mm. <laughs> one could say, even yeah. even edging towards um, you know happy, happy. I know. Yes. <laughs> cuddly, God help me. Cuddly novelist, <laughs> and, and yet. I'm, I'm a, a great admirer of, 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 of your novel, Perfect, which is very dark indeed. Yeah. Um, and have you had trouble with your fans who loved Harold Fry and then Perfect came? Because Perfect, yes, Perfect was, was published second. after. It was Fry. after Harold yes. Fry. Was it um, written before? Well, actually, a draft of it was written before, but it right. was so terrible I had to just okay. abandon it and, and go again. Um, but as with most things, you know, stories are with me for a very long time, so Perfect had been with me for a long time. But the thing I most hate is when somebody describes the novels as sweet. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's lovely if you're a piece of confectionery, but I, I kind of, I sweet. I've never been sweet. I mean, anything it wants me, I really want to kind of swear a bit more. Mm, mm. And, uh, you know... I was trying to analyse it in, in, in the shower this morning, and I think, I think it's because the, the stories aren't sweet. No. I think it's because your nature is um, humane and there is a humanity to the book. So even yeah. though some of the characters are in terrible straits or, or are terrible people occasionally, yes. Yes. you can't resist trying to understand them, no, trying I, to forgive I can't. them. And maybe that's what people mean when they say the books are sweet. Because I mean, perfect <laughs> is it's really dark. It's, you know, it is dark. You have like, some alcoholism and mental illness and this yeah, yeah. deeply, deeply damaged little boy who yes. grows up to be a deeply, deeply damaged adult man. And it is quite funny though um, along the way. It is, no, out. it is funny. It is funny. And, it, and no, I'm listening, I listened to the audiobook of that, yeah. um, which is very funny. I mean, the way he reads it is very yeah, funny. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. It, he did it very well. Mm. But I, I yeah, I, I mean, for me, I could write incredibly dark things, incredibly dark, but they probably wouldn't be palatable. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of, if you want to write things that you want to share, I think for me, I have to find a way of, you know, finding the other things as well and shading it. And also, I don't really want to bash people over the heads with my writing. I mean, I, 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 but I do want to look at issues which I think, you know, move me or which I think are tricky or things I've experienced. I want to think about those mm -hmm. things. But if I can kind of think about them in a way that makes the reader want to come with me, Yes, I mean, Queenie Hen love some of Queenie Hennessy on paper, if you were it didn't look summarizing good on paper. that book. No. It would be a publisher's nightmare. Oh, this oh. is a, you know, 
a story oh, set, great. In, a, You're setting set it in, in a hospice. A hospice um, about a woman dying. That's lovely. Well, and she's dying of a, of a facial cancer that, yeah, that makes people frightened yeah, And she can't speak, so this is um, looking really yeah. good for the book, Rachel. <laughs> and yet, you know, for the reader, the book is... Um, but that again was the challenge of it was because I wanted to write something truthful, but I did want a reader to want to come with me. So mm. the good thing about writing Queenie Hennessy was partly that I'd, I wanted to write it because I'd <laughs> spoken so much about my father and his cancer, which had informed Harold Fry, um, that I began to feel I'd really shortchanged my dad. Right. Because my dad did have this terrible, disfiguring cancer at the end of his life, and it was, you know, it was awful to watch him trying to do something like buying a stamp mm. and people not understanding him and him so needing to be understood uh, and people just not, not really wanting to deal with him that it was heartbreaking or my dad wearing a tie in hospital you know that uh, you know because he wanted it to be business as usual yes. so i'd spoken about all these things but what i never spoke about is my dad you know when i was a child he was a he loved jazz, um, red wine, France. He was, you know, so, you'd go into a shop and if there wasn't an assistant there, he would take a book and go, I am walking out of the shop, I have not paid. <laughs> and you'd be going, oh, Dad, please don't. You know, it was so painful. So he was not just this the victim, you know, he was not a man who sat there at the end who was a victim. And I felt the same with Queenie Hennessy. I thought because of the nature of Harold Fry, I couldn't give Queenie a voice. Mm. But it felt um, wrong not to have done it. So then you, you are writing a book about a hospice, but you're also writing about a woman who's been silent for a very long time. Yes. And a woman who's silent isn't is not a woman who's got nothing to say. It's just that nobody else has shut up. And she needs to be given the opportunity to, you know, put her side. And, and to some extent, she is um, informed, I think, by your huge experience as a radio dramatist. Because in a way, oh, he, yeah. Queenie has become a radio play, a one-woman yes, radio play. Yes, she did. Because there's all this drama <laughs> going on that other yeah, people can't hear. Yeah, I suppose, yes, that's true. Oh. I mean, I, I, I've been writing for radio for 20... You've had three careers, two at years. least. If we, if we discount motherhood as a career, that's another career. But Because yeah. you've, you've been a ac very successful actress and a radio dramatist, and yeah. noveling is really your, your, your latest Hobby. transformation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go right back to the beginning and talk about being an actress. So yeah. you, you've never said to me before about your father's performative side in Oh shots. yeah, no, yeah. Is that where it came from, this desire to stand up there and... I don't, I, do you know, I, what I really think it is, and there must be people who know what I mean, is that I think as a child and a teenager, I was very, I mean, I am very sensitive, but very, very quiet very bookish you know and not very good in social situations that uh -huh. kind of but I you know I was I, I had things to say it's just that I was too quiet to say any of them and so for me theatre was brilliant because it was like I kind of found my voice and it gave you permission and it gave me permission and also right. people had to listen to me because they paid money to sit <laughs> in the theatre and also you know emotionally I think I'm probably I'm kind of in there with my emotion I'm, I'm and a play, there is room for the quite uncomfortable emotions. You know, there's a channel for them. And this is why we mustn't lose these things, because, you know, children like me who, you know, if you just kind of, if I was trying to kind of do normal things, I think I'd have been quite lost, probably quite depressed. But I had a, a vessel. And we have to have that vessel. You know, we need to be creative. We need to be imaginative.
And where did your dramatisation skills go? Did they come from having to cope with bad scripts? And you thought, I can no, do no, better no, than no, this? No, 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 not at all. I was lucky enough that I'd been in a brilliant radio play and I came to radio a bit like... I'd, I'd done theatre, I always did theatre, and I still love theatre. Um, I think that the collaborative... I mean, like us being here today... But well, you, you won know. an award and you were with Cheek by Jowl. I mean, you were, yeah, a, Cheek you, by you, Jowl. You were a very grown-up actor. Yes. Well, I, yeah. I loved it. Um, You've thrown me now. What was I saying? <laughs> so, how you got into radio drama? How I got into radio. So then I was pregnant with my first daughter and I just had an idea for a play. And in those days it was a little easier to get the play commissioned. And um, so this producer said, yes, why don't you try it? And I, I think having had that background in acting and theatre and being lucky enough to do Shakespeare for all those years and Chekhov and then lots of modern writing... You have a kind of just instinctive sense about dialogue and structure. And knowing what will work for an actor as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I still do that. When I'm really stuck, I just pretend I'm the character and I do the monologue. But you're working your way through the Brontes. Is this... Because uh, I'm, I'm doing some adaptation myself at the yes. moment. And I find it... On the one hand, as a writer, it's fascinating because you're taking a novel you love apart. Yeah. But it's also hugely daunting because you're yeah. working with this... Sort of a it masterpiece. Is. It is. And you're and throwing you, away the curates. You're throwing away the curates. Um, Jane Eyre was, in fact, the kind of most challenging one, mm. I think, because if you take a book that everybody really knows and loves, well, not everybody loves, but we all know it, um, you've got to kind of... You can't really mess around with it too much. Well, the Jane Eyre, of all of them, has the structure that still that works. It has Unlike Wuthering Heights, structure. which has a bit that... Don't tell uh, me that. People always dump. Oh, you do it. <laughs> I'm about you're to doing do it. Yeah. No, right. Wuthering Heights is, is like poetry. I mean, whether, Jane Eyre, you can, almost with a fish slice, take out scenes, and you've mm. got to fillet them and you're going to work yeah. them. But, you know, it's stru so structurally precise. Yes. Um, and the changes of location in Jane Eyre are very precise. Yeah, yeah, and it's they are. It's almost like acts. When it like, is like acts. And then mm. the St. John Rivers bit, which comes in, which does kind of throw things. And I think you have to really deal with that one quite yeah, carefully. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, Wuthering Heights, I think, it, you know, she, she, Emily Bronte says, we got on really well when we were six. You know, you think, yes, but where? You know, where's the evidence? And you think, oh, no, I've got to make that up now. Mm. Mm. So that's the challenge of something like Wuthering Heights. I think it's just more visceral. But I've just done Agnes Grey. I don't know how many people know Agnes Grey. Own up. Who has read <laughs> Agnes Grey? Not many people. Right. So that, that, was, that was the kind of delightful one because it's not so well known so you can take more risks with it. Mm. So that was it. That was and fun. you can proselytise a bit. You can actually think, yeah. well, I'm going to make them. Yeah. They will enjoy this so much they'll go yeah, back to the original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think The Tenant of Wildfell Hall is almost my favourite Bronte. I think right. that's an extraordinary novel. OK. And how about adapting work for screen? Are you tempted to do that? Or is there something about the radio that... Um... I'm very faithful to radio because I feel writers need to look after radio writers. I think we all need it because it's a... You know, we, we could be about to lose it, radio drama. Yes, and as it is, BBC are cutting back their radio yeah, drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was speaking to somebody the other day who said it's coming at us like a train, the end of radio. And, um, I mean, it's the only medium I can think of that really, really, you know, new writers are kind of brought in young actors. It's made, I mean, it's made with no money. Mm. But every day there is a drama on. And you might not like all of them, but uh, there it is. Are you going to read us another extract from the stories? I could be. Was well, that throwing you? No, you no, 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 I can, I can. Look, I've got a little, little piece of paper. Yeah. Um, 
So this, this little one is, I can't remember when this is set. It must be somewhere in that period between Boxing Day and New Year's Eve where sort of nothing really happens. I quite like that bit. Mm. You're working your way through the chocolates. And, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But this short story is about um, uh, a boy who's become incredibly famous, the way it can happen now. Um, he's become a pop star. And he's kind of like world famous, uh, but very, very young. And anyway, the, just over Christmas, he rings his mother and says he'd like to come home for Christmas. And um, his mother says, that's lovely, but we've just had Christmas. Uh, so he's coming back. And the idea is that he just wants to come home for a normal family Christmas. So I'm just going to read a tiny bit of that, just a page in a bit. And it's called, I'll be home for Christmas. Now remember everybody, calls Sylvia, raising her voice and hitting a thin note. X, that's the name of her son, the pop star. X doesn't want any fuss, just a normal family Christmas. Can you all hear me? She looks out over the sea of paper party hats and her heart swoops. Sylvia doesn't even recognize half the people in her sitting room. Last time she checked, there were cars parked the length of the street. All three bedrooms have been commandeered for the guests' coats. She has no idea where X will put his suitcases when he arrives. The pale, stick-thin girls in red fleeces with a large silver-embroidered X on the back are from the record company. They gape at their phones because apparently they're all tweeting. Earlier, Sylvia offered them coffee, and to her dismay, they said yes, please, to caffeine-free drinks only. So she had to send her daughter Mary rushing out for herbal tea bags, and now Mary is in such a fury, she is the only person in the room who refuses to wear her, her party hat. As for the others, it's anyone's guess why most of them are here. Some haven't seen X since he was a little boy. Others have never even met him. A few are something to do with Sylvia's sisters. Diane, Sylvia's eldest sister, is dressed in a new blue trouser suit matched with a silk blouse that shows off her figure perfectly. Linda, the middle sister, has come straight from the hairdresser. She has chosen a chic style with one side of her hair cut two inches lower than the other. Whenever she speaks to her, Sylvia has to stop herself from tilting to the left. <laughs> Every chair in the room is occupied by at least two distant relatives. There are aging great-aunts and uncles squashed against the walls. There are cousins and second cousins packed into the bay window, and brothers-in-law, nieces, nephews and their extended families jammed around the dining table. Sylvia's mother is wedged on a sofa sandwiched between two staff members from the nursing home, and several children are already tucking into the buffet. Meanwhile, a dog, who on earth brought a dog, is chewing something in the corner. Sylvia claps her hands. She chirrups again. X just wants us all to be normal. All right, everyone. She can barely <coughs> breathe for excitement. I'm so glad you read that extract because that, although that story officially is about, you know, you've turned up the volume, it's very yeah. much about, you know, the rock, rock industry. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, crazy distortion of, of talent. I wonder whether it was ever so slightly based on your experience of, of suddenly rocketing to publishing fame with, with Harold Fry, because yeah. in, after your years of, of radio writing, it yeah. must have been quite strange to find yourself suddenly embraced by this industry that's quite kind of cannibalistic. Yeah, um, no, it is odd. And that was, when you were talking about Perfect, I think Perfect was a reaction to that. Ah, okay. So Perfect is quite a troubled book, but it, 
it, it did, I mean, I'm in trouble in a good positive way. <laughs> you know, it works its, its thing out. Mm. But it was strange for me because I just wrote this story that had been a radio play. Oh, Harold Fry began on radio. It began right. as a radio play, which I wrote for three people. And I wrote it for Anton Rogers. I don't know if anyone remembers Anton yes. Rogers as an actor. He was a great actor. And my husband is an actor, and he had played Anton Rogers' son for years in a sitcom called May to December. Let's just get it all out so we don't have to <laughs> guess anymore. Anyway, uh, and uh, I had this idea to write this play about a man who walks, I mean, for various personal reasons, one being my dad being very ill with cancer at the time. And I got Anton Rogers in my head as the kind of perfect Harold. And it turned out that he was so perfect that um, the night before, he agreed to do the play and um, had the script, read the script, liked the script. And then the night before we were going to go and record the radio play, um, Anton rang me at home and said, Rachel, I've got a problem with your script. I don't know if you've had, you, I bet you haven't ever had this. I hadn't had that before. And uh, I said, Anton, what is the problem? I'm just going to say again, this is a radio play. Anton said, it's the naked swim scene. I don't think I can do it. <laughs> I thought Vanessa Redgrave was talking about it. So I, I said, OK, do you want me to cut it? He said, yes, yes, please. So I did. So we, d we did the radio play without the naked swim scene. And um, I thought that was such a Harold thing to say. <laughs> That I did, I cut it from the book as well. I mm. thought, you know, nowhere does Harold ever swim naked. Um, thanks to Anton Rogers. Uh, and then Anna Massey played Maureen. Uh, and so they were very much in my head then when I came to write the book. Mm. I don't know how I've got here. I don't remember what your question was, but... Just keep going, it's fascinating. <laughs> keep going. Uh, it, yes, the question the was about, about, the, about the reaction yes, to the book. Yes, so, so the reaction then to the book, if you've written the radio play, which came and went, you know, a few people liked it, it got some good reviews, but then I wrote another play, you know, and it, life continued. Mm. And then I wrote this book, and it was, I mean, it was a bit like, it was again a bit like a train hitting. It just was not, I didn't see it coming at all. Mm. And um, there was one day, I mean, I knew they were coming, but I looked out of the window and there were 20 Spanish journalists on our front garden. I mean, and they all came in to interview me, one at a time. They ate all our biscuits, <laughs> and then away they went. And it, it was just a bit like that for about a year. I was kind of travelling way too much, and And you get no training as a novelist on how to cope yeah. with this at all. No, you they, don't. They I mean, the other thing is that I think if you want to write, you go to a very private place where you don't really talk. I mean, it's delicious that you've all come today. It's really kind of you. I think there's a limit to how many events writers should be allowed to do. Because otherwise, I think you get to think you're a little bit special. <laughs> <laughs> all these people want to listen to me. <laughs> and actually, I think as a writer, you mustn't be thinking those things. You must go somewhere quite, you know, ordinary and maybe whatever it is. But, you know, you're not anything special and so the thing that was confusing about that was just you know can you be in New York tomorrow and and I did but I found it unsettling and increasingly you're expected to do things that aren't really directly to do with being a writer like tweeting or Instagram and you're being very good I've noticed you've started appearing on Instagram well Instagram I like because it's photographs pictures. yes it's pictures yeah. but I said no to tweeting and no to Facebook um, but I mean I had a very good reason to say because I'd written a book about a man who went out without a mobile phone that was the whole point so for me to start tweeting just seemed 
That would be insane. Yeah. That yeah. would be kind of untrue to what. And for me, I would always go back to a place where I was writing about certain innocent, you know, people who forgot the things, you know, like mobile phones. Mm. And let's talk about Love Song of Queenie Hennessy because that's not really a sequel. It, no. It, it has a fascinating relationship to the. The book that sprout, it sprouted out of. Yeah, it, it, well, it was just, it's just like turning the camera. I mean, I don't think, you know, that I would, I would do it again, but because Harold Fry was, as I said, because of Queenie's story not being represented mm. in that book, because, you know, I couldn't structurally have the story of the woman that he's walking to, because then mm. I, would, I would just have blown the whole tension yeah, of the book. Yeah. But to kind of turn the camera back, is it is it I for me I mean maybe it is a bit of a, a radio thing but it, it's just you get to look at the whole story from another point of view and I find that really interesting and I was quite envious as well because you had set yourself this lovely structural challenge yes. I think writers respond well to challenges structurally. Yes. If, you're, if you're told you must have a, a scene here to correspond to that scene there well that was so all you, my own fault you'd set your course. structure yes. in Harold yes and I had there, set certain it. points yeah. where he had contact so you had yeah. to I also, I mean, the other thing was that as I was writing it very early on, I knew that I would be adapting it for radio as well. Ah. So I, I, I kind of very much thought of it as five uh, acts, which is quite a useful thing to do. I mean, for me anyway, to kind of know that there are certain beats you've just got to hit to keep the thing moving. The other thing I was lucky, there was because my dad... Um, had been terrified of the idea of a hospice. So I'd never been to a hospice, and yet there I had, I'd put Queenie in a hospice. Um, so I went to start visiting hospices very early on when I was researching the book, so I thought, I've really got to do that. And I, I was lucky enough to meet, go out for dinner with four Macmillan nurses, and it was the funniest night I've had in years. And the stories they told me were so kind of irreverent and joyful. Um, one of which I managed to include, which was about um, one of the younger nurses at the hospice had thought it would be a really lovely idea to clean everybody's dentures one night. <laughs> so she did. Um, she collected them all up, but she forgot to mark them up. And so she brought them out, and she said everybody was so kind of touched that they all put them in anyway. <laughs> but it was just, I thought, well, what a lovely, you know, it's just everybody's being kind. Yes. <laughs> Can we talk about the nuns as well? Oh, yes. Because the nuns are quite, quite, play quite a crucial role in that novel. I'm quite nun-influenced, I think, and, and it's because but you I live... you weren't raised a Catholic, or you didn't go no, to convent school? I've no. got no... And in fact... No, no. I mean, as a child, we did go to church a tiny bit with my grandparents. Um, and I did ask if I could be confirmed when I was 13. Mm. So I went for uh, confirmation lessons. My dad was really unsure. I'm sorry, but he was really unsure about that. But anyway, I did. And I, I, then the day before, I said to my mum, I can't go through with it. I don't want to be confirmed. And my mum said, well, you've got to be confirmed because we've got people coming for lunch. <laughs> so I it's was a very confirmed. CRB attitude. <laughs> I was confirmed. Um, and now, I, I mean, I don't go to church services, but increasingly I have a relationship with I don't know what. I feel I'm looking for something and I don't know what. I, I mean, last night, sitting inside that church, you know, for the amazing gig, um, I thought these buildings move me. Mm. The fact that they've been it, they are, you know, whatever you believe in and don't believe in, they are a place for people to come together and 
you know, all to be in one space. And I can't think of many other places, bar a shopping mall, where that happens. Right. And I'd rather be in the church than Mary Walk's shopping arcade in Stroud, which yeah. is my alternative. Um, but the nuns, the but nuns, the nuns are they based on real nuns? They are known? based on real nuns. Where I live, it happens that there is a community of six nuns. And uh, when we first went to see our house, three of them walked past, and they wear these amazing white gowns. Mm. And um, they, I began chatting to them, and now I, I talk to them a lot. Uh, they say they're not allowed in our house. I don't know whether it's just my house <laughs> or whether it's something to do with their order and anybody's house, but I am allowed to visit them, so I do go and see them. And I really love these women. I could not tell you how old they are, where they've been, but there's something about their energy, again, that I do mm. find very moving. Mm. And in fact, they, they have a book group, and they asked me if I would go and talk to them about Harold Fry. Right. Apparently they'd all read it. So I did go and talk to them, and they, end, they said at the end, um, the hospice, they said, we're called the St. Bernardine nuns. Your hospice is called St. Bernardine. Is there any link? And I thought, oh, God, yeah, there is. I forgot. I forgot to change it. I said, I'm really sorry. I should have. They said, we love it. <laughs> and then she said, do you tell people it's us? I said, uh, no, I, I promise. Do tell them. Do tell them it's us. Brilliant. So there you are, Browns Hill nuns. So it's interesting that you have that, for want of a better word, sort of spiritual curiosity. Because yeah, the, I do. All the novels and indeed the stories, it seems to me there is threaded through them a, a sense of, what's yeah. that? That very grown up word, the numinous. There's a sense yeah. of a, a, a significance. Yeah. But it's not as straightforward as a religious significance, I wouldn't say. Um, no, I, I don't think it is, but I think it's to do with compassion. And mm. it seems to me that, I mean, God knows right now, if we're not compassionate and we don't try and understand what we don't know, God help us, you know, yeah. whoever you are. Um, so I think to keep reaching out seems really important. No, absolutely. And of course, writing fiction is, is a work of a work on the part of the reader, a work of empathy. Yes. Um, it's why it's meant to be good for us to read, read yes. fiction. It makes us our emotional IQs higher. So yeah. your books are full of those little moments where you're expecting people. Per I gave back to perfect again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got some deeply unsympathetic characters who you end up sympathising with because you understand that even, even the awful woman, the kind of semi-blackmailing character. Um, yes, even she. I mean, the, the yes. I mean, in per Perfect, I don't know if many people have read it. I'm assuming not because Harold Fry people it. did. Really people did read, but Perfect <clears throat> was much more for me about people who fall between the cracks. Mm. And um, the only character I really don't. I haven't written many characters I really don't like, but there are a couple of school mothers in Perfect <laughs> who are so immovable. Mm. I mean, that seems to me the greatest sin. So those not are the people divide. I don't well, like. Well, they've got their characters of clothes. Yeah, and they're minds. so judgmental. Whereas even there's Diana, there's a figure in, in, in it who's a, there's a young boy who is basically put in the position of having to mother his mother, while his mother, who has tried so hard to be perfect, kind of disintegrates. Yeah, she goes into meltdown. She does she? go into meltdown because she's trying to be something she isn't. She's trying to be perfect. And... Um, she is married to a man who is you know, kind of set in another time, but even he, who is so bad for her, I, I kind of try, I hope it comes across in the novel, I think is the product of generations of men not talking to one another. Mm. But women, women who won't forgive, I, I, I struggle with them.
And can we talk about the, for want of a better word, mental illness in the book? Um, there's there's a, a, a character with, I think you'd call it obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, yeah. To the, but he's obsessive to the point where it's, it's almost making it impossible for him to live. Yeah. Um, because he's living in this van where he's sealed up all the entrances. He has to greet all the inanimate objects. He does, Regularly. Yes. Yeah. And that, that felt so well-researched and so real. Have you ever known somebody in that situation? Or has this come to you via, via your husband with his psychiatric oh, practice? Oh, I see. Or? No, I mean, uh, we knew somebody who came over around the time I was writing it who, who was living in a shed mm. uh, now because he couldn't live anywhere else. And he was certainly having to greet everything when he walked into the shed. Um, then when I thought about it, I thought, well, there was a period when I was a teenager when I was definitely not eating enough. Yeah. I was, you know, I, I, and I think it's at times when you're not sure of the world, you start creating rules, and they, they're crazy rules, yeah. but they seem to make sense to you. Well, they're about control, aren't they? <laughs> Controlling your control. little area. Yeah. yeah. So it didn't seem a million miles from me for me to step into a place where I could imagine this poor man who couldn't walk into his caravan without having to greet, you know, hello book, hello rug. It didn't, it didn't seem completely insane. I mean, the thing was then to write that story and rescue him. Mm. Yes. And you're compassionate. Right. In my compassion, <laughs> funny way. I know way. your readers are dying to ask you questions, but before they do, I'm going to ask you the a final question, which is the one writers are never meant to ask, which is, what are you doing next? Or what are you doing at the moment? Well, um... What should you be doing what instead should of going I off be on doing? holiday? I'm, I'm writing this book, um, which is... It's called The Music Shop, and um, it's most of it's set in 1988, but it's a man who, about a man who's... Um, he runs a record shop. And he really loves vinyl. But he also has a gift. He has a gift for finding people the music they need to hear. Not that they want to hear, but they need to hear. And, uh, but it's set in 1988. And 88 is the year that CD sales overtook yes. vinyl. So we know that as we read. And it, it's, it's about this man and the journey he makes. And then he meets a woman who doesn't <coughs> like music. And it's about their journey together. And it's really about healing through music and how we can heal one another, I guess. It sounds lovely. And then there's a lot, I mean, I also, my husband and I really, we really love records, we really love music. So I kind of set myself the challenge as a non-musical, non-musically trained people to kind of write about why I love music. Mm. Fascinating. Right, I think it's time to throw this open to the audience. So. There is a roving mic. Um, oh, Phil's going to be the roving mic man. Please put up your hand if you have a question for Rachel. Uh, could I just say, if you have got a question, just bear with me till I get the microphone to you. Don't, don't go too quick, otherwise people at the back won't hear. Should we go home? <laughs> <laughs> There's a question. Francesca, author to author. Rachel, when you were giving the summary of the pilgrimage of Harold Fry, I was trying to imagine your editor trying to sell this to the marketing department of your publisher. Did you have a hard time getting it published? No, I was quite lucky because um, I, I wrote it. I had a hard time writing it, but then when I wrote it, I... I sent it to a few agents because I didn't, I didn't want to tell anyone that I wrote for radio. I thought that was cheating. I don't know quite why I thought that, but anyway. So I thought, I'll just send it out. And of course, nobody got back to me, nobody. And then um, 
a friend of mine said, oh, I know somebody who's in publishing. Because at that point, I thought, maybe it's not a book. Maybe it just doesn't work. And this friend of mine uh, asked a friend of hers to have a look. She's a non-fiction editor. And she read it in a weekend and said, yeah, I want it. And then it was just off. So I didn't do any of the things that you're supposed to do. I didn't even have an agent. Uh, I certainly didn't I do the... I ripped off. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never asked anyone. I didn't mind. I really wanted to publish a book. I, you know, I've loved reading books for so long. And I've wanted to write a book for so long that when, you know, I kind of thought, yeah. And it was great for me. I mean, it, all re it was as if it, you know, it did all just fall into mm. place. Mm. And then it was a bit mad. But so I don't know whether she had problems selling it or not. I think also sometimes you can just be lucky that a book kind of lands at a time when there's a bit of an appetite for it. And you sold a lot of translation rights, I think. In your yes, they did. Yes. Yeah, it was, which, I mean, which does surprise me, not because I don't think the book will make sense, but it feels so intensely English. It, you think, do you well, know, what on earth do Spanish readers make of this well, story? Well, it's a bestseller in Taiwan, mm. <laughs> of which I'm very proud. You know, and China, huge in China. Yeah. Germany, they, they're, they're very fond of Harold. Well, yeah, Germany and England, I can understand, because yeah. the, the sympathies are closer. Yeah. But, uh, that's fascinating. Another question. It's, it's, it's an unliterary question, but I've never been more aware in a book of the environment. We live in Devon, uh -huh. and the Devon part, when he starts walking, yeah. I recognized every turning in the road. Do you Good. know Devon very well? <laughs> That bit of Devon, yes. I said it, I deliberate, because when you start to write a book and you haven't written a book before, it seems to me you need to do everything you can to make it as easy for you. You know, just the, you be, I mean, the, the trick, I think, is believing it. So I, I originally, when I wrote the play, I don't know why, I decided to set it in Beverly. Never been to Beverly, I just thought oh. it sounded fun. And if I went to Beverly a few <laughs> weeks ago and it wasn't quite as much fun as I thought it was. <laughs> when I wrote the book, I thought, let's not be stupid. Let's set it in Kingsbridge, which is where my husband, Paul, was born. Not born, but brought up. And so I set it in the house where Paul was brought up. You know, didn't hide the name of the road very well, forgot to do that. And then, you know, walked some of the walk. We stopped off at some of the pubs. Seemed a very good idea. <laughs> so uh, all that part of it, you know, is exact. You know, I just felt I could do that. And then because I live in Stroud, I know all the, you know the, the area between. I know very very well. And in fact, then when it came to the kind of observations and the detail about the countryside, which I think is such a big part of the book because it's about a man waking up to the world outside him. You know, I just had that all every time I walked out of the front door. And we'd only just moved to that bit of Stroud, and I think I really, f I had really fallen in love with where we lived. So it was a kind of wonder, you know, just, you just itching to express it. If I could paint, I'd have painted it, but I can't. And there was a question just in front of me. I wondered about the, you mentioned the curates and the cut characters sort of haunting your caravan. Do other characters ever come back to you, like Maureen or Harold, for that matter? Yeah, well, poor Maureen, Maureen and poor Maureen. I mean, somebody said to me the other day, oh, when are you going to write Maureen's story? <laughs> and then I said that to my editor, and she said, do not write Maureen's story. <laughs> Nobody will buy it, which I thought was a bit harsh. Mm. Um, so I'm thinking that's a no. Uh, but 
Yeah, they, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's the same for you, Padre, but once you've written something and let go, and you see that the characters walk on their own feet, I kind of feel they're, they're, they're off. Well, just sometimes there's that incomplete character. And I, yeah. think, you know, Maureen, I think Maureen has legs. I, I, she has legs. There's, there's a yes. lot we don't know, but there's a lot. Yeah. There's, yep. There are lots of dot, dot, there dots are to dot, her. Dot, so there's room yep. for you to get in yeah. there and, mm. and make some mischief. I think the, thing, the, the danger there is the structural one. Yeah. That Maureen doesn't go on a walk she and isn't waiting for anybody. No, and we do so, know what her journey is. It, yes. could, only be, it yeah. could only be in the past. I mean, the mm. other thing is that sometimes, not, not often, but occasionally, and again, I don't know if you get this, Patrick, but you'll do an event like this and then somebody in the audience will really object to something. So a couple of times there were people who loathed the way I had written Queenie in, um, in Harold Fry. Mm. I mean, really loathed it and thought it was wrong what I'd done. And uh, I did one event where, I don't know, I don't know quite why, you seem nice, so I'm telling you. Um, this they seem woman, nice. Yeah, they yeah. do seem nice. They seem nice last night. Yeah, anyway, this woman came up to me and she said, uh, my friend couldn't come to this event, but she wants you to read her letter. I opened her letter and it was clearly a woman whose son had committed suicide. And she was so angry with me for having written a book when my son had not committed suicide. And I found that really tough. I couldn't actually finish the letter because I felt, ah, oh, have I, you know, have I, so, have I done something? I, I felt awful. And I still haven't, I, mean, I think that's why I'm telling you, I'm hoping you're kind of, this is my group therapy moment, so, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that's the side of it that I, I found hard and the kind of characters that you've, that stay with you. No, David does stay with me. Yeah. I think as a sort of literary counsellor, if you come to me in that <laughs> guise, I would say that's a success story because it means that the book felt so real to her that right. she got really angry and, and responded. It wasn't just a story. Yeah. Um, and there, there is something... That, that book, she, I think that she was referring to, well, both Harold Fry and... Queenie Hennessy, where the son, where the son. I mean, I I've probably given things away now, but um, I mean there was an uh, the the thing. I think if you write quite, if you try and write compassionate books, you do get yourself in a place sometimes where people want to tell you things, and on mm. the whole, it's been very moving. And there are times when I found myself with somebody, you know, an hour and a half later, we're we're talking about something that's happened, but that feels a bit of a gift. But, but those in are, that but occasion, those are two novels bad. that are about the stuff of life. They're about getting yeah. older and yeah. getting ill and yeah. dying and yeah. failing as parents. So I think yeah. you must strike a lot of chords with mm. your readers, and you just Maybe. have to deal with that. Yes. yes. <laughs> we have another question. Thank you. Um, Rachel, I, I, this is probably a stupid question, really, but I'm, I'm intrigued as to whether you find it either easier or more pleasant to write characters that are men or characters ah. that are women. I, I just to, I, I, this applies to any writer in the room, I guess, but I'm just interested to know your thoughts. Well, I like both. I find it, I find it very easy, obviously, to write women, but I like the challenge of trying to write a man. And sometimes I think that a challenge, as Patrick was saying earlier, can somehow structure you. You know, it kind of, because it's a bit of a leap, you, you find some rules that are quite useful in order for you to make the leap. And I would like to think that 
men and women. I mean, we both. You know, we there are cracks. There are there are things that happen to that, that kind of push us out of the track that we're supposed to be on, and those are the places that interest me. So, for instance, um, earlier this week, I was at Dorchester, and I was asked to, the the title of the event. It was such a bizarre title. It was me and a writer of historic fiction. So the kind of the meeting places were few anyway, yeah. but the title was Hardy and Strong Women and Rachel Joyce and Dinah Jeffries. <laughs> and um, I kind of, halfway through, I got a bit bullshy, which I don't normally do. I don't know what happened to me, but I said, why is this called Strong Women anyway? Because you wouldn't call an event Strong Men, would you? But what, you know, what is it? Um, so that, I didn't go down terribly well in Dorchester, as you can imagine. <laughs> I don't know why I got a bit bolshy. I just did. I don't normally. I'm, I'm a, sure they loved it. I don't know that they did. <laughs> they didn't ask any questions. Well, okay, so exemplary audience here. Can we have a, another question? Well, I have another question while we're waiting for them to, to have, have some yeah. inspiration. I'm always fascinated by the, the interplay between the fictional process and the sort of psychotherapy process. Oh, yeah. And just as you were an actor and had become a writer, so your other half yeah. was an actor and has become, is he a, a Jungian? He's a psychotherapist, but he's also training as a Jungian psychotherapist right. now, yeah. And inevitably, when you live with someone who's going through that training process, you must be cross-fertilising with your ideas and so yeah, on. And yeah, yeah. Are you starting to notice parallels? Is it making you more conscious when you develop characters that you're putting them through a kind of... I, well, I mean, I think process. he and I are both, I mean, I think this is as actors, you're really interested in how people work. Mm. And you're really interested in the thing, I mean, increasingly, I think, with listening to Paul, I mean, he has to be very careful because he's not supposed to tell me, I'm certainly not supposed to write down and nick stories from clients. That would be all completely wrong. So... Um, theoretically. Theoretically, it would be very wrong. Uh, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, why people do what they do, I find really moving. Mm. And you write very well about childhood and how childhood damage well, I think, produces you know, the, the little adult things, person. Yes, I, I mean, think. not necessarily damage, but just, you know... Or, or misunderstanding, you know, yeah, even. Yeah. yeah, which can come to be the same thing if it's not sorted out. Yes, so. yes. Um, in a way, perfect isn't... I don't want to give away the plot too much, but it is entirely motivated really by a it's just a mo sort of yeah it, it is um, it is completely yeah. about a child who's mm. um uh yeah goes off the rails really yeah, yeah. but just through a tiny moment but can you imagine an, an alternative career in which you didn't become hadn't become a writer but had uh, yeah i can i mean increasingly um, i think because i find writing quite hard <laughs> <laughs> and i think it gets harder is what I'm thinking. So there's a part of me. I think therapists are paid better. As I well. think therapists are paid better. I mean, Paul, Paul my husband, says to me, I, he's the thing. The trouble with therapy is nobody claps you at the end, <laughs> which I really get. And if you're an actor, you're quite used to people going, yes, yes, you're very, very good. Um, whereas therapists don't have that. Uh, again, I've lost where I they was have going. To pat themselves yeah, on they the do back. have to pat themselves on mm. the back. Yeah. But you're you're type of fiction, as I've said earlier, is so full of empathy and compassion. So in a way, what you're doing with your characters is you put them in a very bad place and you, know, you try to heal them, you try to... I guess, yes. I mean, and often, it's, often it is somebody I've seen that sparks off something. Mm. So certainly, in Perfect, there was a man who used to walk his dog past our house and I'd hear this man coming because he was shouting so much at this dog. 
I never saw the dog, I just heard the shouts. And I assumed the dog was about the size of this platform from the way that he was shouting. When I finally saw the dog, I swear it was this big. <laughs> it was the tinsiest dog in the world. But probably but very he... willful. Like really, like, really like difficult. Like Francesca's dog, yes. <laughs> Really difficult. But the thing was about this man that he... He had the kind of haircut that makes, you know, makes it just was so short it looked unkind. Mm. And, uh, you know, it clearly had things going on. And it, I don't know why that really moved me that here he was walking this dog and people were avoiding him. And, you know, I was slightly avoiding him. Um, but I really wanted to write about him. We've got time for a couple more questions. Yes. A small boy once said he preferred radio to television because the pictures were better. <laughs> we're in an age when people are looking at screens, large and small, constantly. How are we going to nurture imagination? Yeah. Other than books, as well Other as than books, books as well as radio books. drama. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot to be said for. Um, I mean, I, I've, yeah, I love books and I love radio and I'm not such a big film person and I'm certainly not a big TV person but there are some things that I think are you know brilliant um, but the nurturing of the imagination I, I kind of feel it will go in several ways you know things will keep moving there will be new things all the time won't there and mm, new ways so. of telling stories and that's all to be embraced um, but I can't I mean I remember when you know, when the whole thing came out with a Kindle and people were saying, oh, that's the end of books. But, you know, look at us. We've all still got yeah. our books. You know, in fact, Kindles have doubled, doubled book sales because yeah. people are buying both now. Yeah. They yeah. buy the Kindle to see if they like the book and then yeah. they buy the book. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's quite funny because your, your instinct when you're signing a copy is to say, I hope you enjoy it in a rather yeah. kind of fawning way. And <laughs> yeah. quite often now they say, oh, I do. I've read it already. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted a nice copy to put yeah, on the yeah, shelf. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have another question for Rachel? We're being very quiet over this side of the room. Don't worry, you don't have to be noisy. Oh, I can finish with a little story. I'm always. Oh, tell them, tell them a story. I will tell you a little story. Oh, there story. is a hand. There is a hand. Right to the back. Right. And then you can tell your story. I'll tell my little story. Thank you. Hi, hello. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> I was just wondering, you were talking about um, you know, wanting to be compassionate to various characters in a story, even if they have different perspectives or aren't very likeable. And I was thinking, if you're building a scene with two characters coming from different perspectives, like, do you manage to hold both perspectives in your mind at the same time? Or do you kind of have to think of the scene from one character's point of view and then the others, if that makes sense as a question? I think probably it de normally depends on kind of whose story it is, really. That primarily, then, I will be with the person whose story it is. But for me, I mean, I end up kind of stalking the characters. You know, you, and even if I cut, 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 cut loads of it, um, I, I, I'm never happy until I've... I mean, it's the same for anybody, but until you believe it, I can't let it go. And I don't always believe it because it's made up. Mm. <laughs> uh, it doesn't always feel true until I dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And normally I do... I mean, I do so many drafts of everything because I'm not very good at it yet. I have to really work at it. And uh, the original draft, I will go deep, 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 and then probably I'll just rubbish it. It will all go. And are, you a plan point, are you a planner or a splurger? So do you just I'm start writing and both. see what comes? And I'm a little of both. Right. Um, I think you have to splurge and plan. Okay. Splurge and plan, splurge and plan, <laughs> like that. So tell us this story. My little story is apropos of nothing at all apart from people who kind of make you think and characters. And um, 
we were, we were, when I, for, when Harold Fry first came out, one of the first ever books I, I think I've told you this story. So you haven't told that. Have so I, I, no, because Patrick's being so polite as if I've never ever said this before. <laughs> but anyway, I, I forgot, did this. I forgot, I'm middle-aged, I forget I've never seen you spoken to so many people. Anyway, the point is, Stroud Bookshop, uh, and I'm doing my first ever book signing for The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, and three people come. And one is a man with three teeth. Oh, it's a good story, this. And this yeah. has nothing to do with the number of people in the bookshop. He just happens to have three teeth. And he said, I just want to say to you, Rachel, that uh, you look better in real life than you do in your photo outside, and I'm not buying your book. And, um, and I said, oh, oh, that's okay. And he said, I'm not buying your book because does it have a train in it? And I said, well, it, it doesn't because it's about a man who walks the length of England. So he said, well, I only buy books with trains, so I won't be buying it, but I wish you well. Anyway, next year I went back to Stroud and I did my the book signing for Perfect. And this time there are six people in the shop, so you can see my popularity has doubled in Stroud in a year. And uh, the man with three teeth comes in and says, uh, Rachel, nice to see you, your new book. Uh, has it got a train in it? And I said, well, it, it hasn't, because it, it's about a kind of car accident and a tiny moment in time and how events, so it doesn't have a Well, I won't be buying it, but I wish you well. So, when I wrote the love song of Miss Queenie Hennessy, if you go, I don't know about, I don't know how far in, a quarter in maybe, there is a very long train journey all the way from Exeter to Berwick-upon-Tweed. So I waited at Stroud Bookshop. <laughs> he didn't turn up. <laughs> very sad. On which very happy note, I'm very glad you did all show up. And um, please put your hands together to thank Rachel.